When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley, back in our usual studio after what seems like years on the road for the party conference season. Once again, by popular demand, I'm declaring this week's episode a Brexit-free zone so we can look in more detail at some of the other big things happening in politics right now. If anyone does use the B word, you'll hear my Brexit klaxon, which this week sounds like this. Joining me this week are Lucy Fisher, Senior Political Correspondent for The Times on Cutting the Cost of Politics, Katie Perrier, Theresa May's former Director of Communications and now Times Columnist on the perils of reshuffles, and Daniel Finkelstein on Trouble at Home and Abroad. If you've got a burning question about the state of British politics, get in touch. Tweet us at Times Red Box or email redbox at thetimes.co.uk and we'll at least try to answer your questions in the coming weeks. Right then, let's get started and we begin with Lucy Fisher and who is suffering from peer pressure. The House of Lords is looking at 15-year time limits for new peers and ways of slashing its size after its 800-odd members last year agreed it was a bloated institution. It's not the size that's the fundamental problem with the chamber, however. It's the cronyism. The current review may be welcomed as a start by some campaigners, but to my mind, it's misguided. It doesn't tackle the appointment system that renders the chamber the plaything of party leaders. So this is a good uh, scoop by you on the front page of the Times. You're right, though, that the interesting thing is that there are people who have a fundamental problem with the existence of the House of Lords and with the way that they're appointed to it. Mm -hmm. And just putting a time limit on how long new peers can stay for doesn't really address... It's sort of... the Lords in this particular committee seem to be coming up with sort of increasingly inventive ways of trying to do things around the edges because nobody can tackle the fundamental issue. Yes, well, th- this this committee that's been convened by the Lord Speaker, um, a cross-party committee uh, of peers um, who, who've been tasked with consulting um, members of the House, the public, and trying to come up with consensual ways to reduce its number, um, that's the remit of the report. So it's not supposed to be looking at the appointment system. And I think that the proposals um, that we've discovered that they're, they're going to recommend, um, the time limits, uh, and asking each party to make a commitment to reduce uh, its, its number in stages um, it is interesting but to my mind I, I just think we need to push back against the argument that we need to reduce the size of the Lords I just don't see on what grounds that should be the case people argue about the cost well frankly you know it peers are entitled to claim £300 a day for the days they work overall if you slash the house by 200 even 300 peers you're saving you know a few million pounds a year probably not even 10 million pounds a year it is chicken feed uh, in the grand scheme of things you know there's no argument that it's you know overcrowding you know many peers don't turn up uh, to every you know bill or every vote and to my mind that's a good thing we want a second chamber an editing revision chamber that um, boasts rich 
spectrum of experience and people that have other interests, other jobs. Um, so my contention is that, that what's really damaged the reputation of the Lord is not the fact that there are 800 of them, it's that David Cameron so abused the system uh, since 2010 by stuffing um, stuffing the red benches with so many new party political appointments. Um, and I think that's the view of many peers. Betty Boothroyd, um, former common speaker, last year accused him of tarnishing the reputation of the House by abusing the system this way. I feel like I should come to you, Danny. Yes, <laughs> uh, of course you should. And, and um, well, first of all, I do agree with you, Lucy, about the numbers. So that is. So should uh, we, should, we should explain that you, you as well as being a columnist at the Times, you yes. also sit in the House of Lords as and a Tory. The appointment of David Cameron. Yeah. So, you know, it's worthwhile saying that. So it's important to what I'm about to say. The, the, the first thing is, I agree with you, Lucy, about the number of uh, peers. You know, yesterday I was there for the Space Industries Bill. Uh, it had a few peers in it, those people who had a, a knowledge, expertise or interest in that particular area. Um, and really, there may have been 20 people there. It's very rare that you think to yourself, my goodness, there are many too many people here. I do actually happen to think the allowance system doesn't work as it should. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a system that was designed as a panic response to the uh, position that was of of the MPs and to one or two peers going to jail for their expenses. I actually think IPSA should be asked to look at it and come up with a system that works because it's supposed to cover costs. It's not supposed to be a payment for peers. There's then a question of how you do compensate peers for the time that they uh, spent if you decide that you want to do that. And of course, we're, we're putting to one side here altogether the idea of whether an unelected house is a good way of dealing with the problem of how you scrutinise legislation. Uh, every time I think it's a terrible idea, and I think there's a lot to be said against it, I then come up with the problem, well, what do you replace it with? Mm. Uh, and then I end up thinking, well, maybe we should just not have a second house at all, and that's also not a good idea. So um, uh, let's put all that to one side. Then there's this issue of cronies. Look, it's really embarrassing to have to deal with it because it's an obvious question. I was put there by David Cameron, and if you describe that, cronies and that's a perfectly reasonable uh, description I'll take it on the chin it is not my view of course it would it wouldn't be uh, would it uh, that that is a serious problem when I got into the House of Lords I felt actually the balance in the Lords was there was a lot of expertise but often not very much political knowledge. And I thought David Cameron attempted to redress that. I didn't think uh, it was unbalanced because Tony Blair had put in a lot of peers. But it did illustrate an obvious problem, which is where do you stop? You know, David could have ended up chasing a majority in the House of Lords and then somebody else would get in and chase a majority there. And there was no obvious end to that. We c- it's very difficult for me to say whether the people that were put in, including me, are of adequate <laughs> quality, right? Other people will have to make that judgment. It isn't my judgment, and the other thing I'm a bit wary of is this. Peers who get in, like Betty Boothroyd, who was herself a Labour MP for years, uh, of course they kind of regard a load of other nouveau Tories coming in as being tarnishing the reputation of the House, you know, as opposed to other perfectly good people like Sally Morgan or Spencer Livermore, uh, who were also put in the House. So the moment you get into this question of who is and who isn't a crony, it becomes difficult. But I acknowledge that I'm the last person, really, who can make an objective judgment about that, and I don't attempt to do so. Lucy, and then we'll bring in Katie. I I do. I I accept some certainly what what you you say, Danny, and I think, you know, of course, my 
sort of um, argument here is certainly not a personal attack on, on you. Thank you. <laughs> and also, you mentioned people, I think, you know, like Spencer Livermore, a former Labour aide, you, know, you, like he, have dedicated much of your life to politics. You do have an incredible wealth of knowledge, um, you know, wisdom to, to bring to bear. But my problem is more, you know, with donors, people who seem just so random, not even experts um, or particularly successful in their own field, apart from being wealthy. It, it's those people. Yeah. I think the sense that, you know, a place in the Lords can be bought, which is quite so distasteful. It's very interesting. Um, one of the things about this crony mm-hmm. issue is that when a leader is attempting to put together a list, one of the things they try to do is to put together a list with a bit of diversity in it. Because one of the advantages of the House of Lords, because you can pick a selection of people, you want to make sure that it's ethnically diverse and it's diverse on gender. Uh, but of course, leaders inner circles are sometimes not that diverse so what they then do is go and put into the laws people they don't in fact know all that well Uh, weirdly um i don't think the problem with these appointments is cronyism i think it's sort of random (laughs) choices in which the leader's kind of reaching out into a now i don't want to pick out any particular party in the house in which is unfair on colleagues and also sometimes i don't know them well enough to make the judgment that's a flip one um but i i would observe that um lucy is correct in thinking it might be a good idea to have the lord's appointments commission review the quality of the appointments as well as the propriety of them and I suspect the people they have a problem with will not end up being what one might describe as cronies, but people who in fact don't know the leader all that well, but were selected in order to you know, make sure they had someone from the business field who um, may not necessarily be a donor, by the way, but who fulfilled some other criteria. Mm. Katie, we need, we need what the you, Finkelstein what, review. What do, you make, <laughs> what do you make of all this? Where do you stand on the House of Lords? I'm a massive fan of the House of Lords. Purely, yes, purely because oh, you've gone I've down worked, in my estimation. Sorry, mate. <laughs> purely because I've worked for several uh, members of the Lords over my career, and who have been extremely experienced and massively knowledgeable. And I sometimes would only wish that some of that knowledge would be in the House of Commons more, before the Lords would have to kind of stick their ear, you know, nose in and uh, make some of the decisions they had to. Uh, over the years so uh, I've become very much uh, I fell in love with the House of Lords in many respects in my early 20s because that was not a place for me at all and yet I was made to feel very at home very early on and uh, I, I feel very much like Danny does in terms of Yes, there are f- major flaws with it, but what is the alternative? I really worry about a House of Lords that's full of people that didn't make it into the House of Commons, a kind of second-rate that's chamber. What, that's, that's, that's what it is now. It really isn't that But it's now. full of loads of people who lost their seats. It's, well, it's full of loads of people that are absolutely knowledgeable in their 60s yeah, yeah, yeah. and 70s but to, but to and say that shouldn't, shouldn't turn around I mean, and tell you. It's actually not full right, so of, those, of those people. Well, there, there are right, loads so, of people there who, there who have some been people. ejected by the by There, there are some the people of whom that's true. Yeah. Uh, and... and Sometimes those pe- you are capturing by putting those people some extra expertise. And what I think overall you have to ask this question, to how, how well does it work? And I would yeah. say, actually, it's a mixed answer. I think the House of Lords is extremely good at um, agreeing with the House of Commons, in fact, that the House of Commons legislation isn't adequate and should be reformed. There is a question over whether there's now too much party voting in the House of Lords, so that you do, you're not getting quite as much independence as you would want. I'd so agree there with are that. criticisms to make. I, I thought when you wrote a piece on this in the in the uh, the Times, it was brilliant, as your pieces always are, it was brilliantly witty and contained a lot of truth in it. But I just thought it was over the top. I didn't, I didn't think <laughs> I don't. And like that statement, it's full of people who. Yeah, are, yeah, yeah. That's not true. There may well, be. Well, you could my, maybe. My, my my fundamental point in that piece that I wrote was the people who are writing or rewriting the laws. Of 
of the land should be chosen by the people who are affected by it. Yes. I, I, and, I agree with and that. The defense, and so, the defense for, for having unelected people writing the laws of the land is just that alternatives might be slightly messier okay. and not as good. Well, that's not true. So uh, that's a fair point. But here, there are two, I think, answers to this. The first is it's not true completely about how we write the law of the land because quite a lot of law is at the very least interpreted by judges and they're not elected and we wouldn't want them to be elected. And yet we have, with the Human Rights Act now, got judges with quite a <coughs> lot of what one... You know, of course, lawyers will say there's not, they're interpreting the law, but that is actually not the case. They are creating what the law means and they're not elected. So, in other words, as a check on the House of Commons, we already have an unelected layer. So, it's not a principle that's unknown to us, right? And and, and the second question is, um, if you had an elected House of Lords, it would do, and I've seen this now because I'm in it, it would do one of two things. Either it would reject everything or it would accept everything. <laughs> right? because it would vote long party lines yeah. and I I completely agree with everything that you've said and have always been a supporter of having an elected second chamber until Nick Clegg came up with his proposal this was before I was in the chamber Nick Clegg came up with his proposal and I thought to myself that would be terrible <laughs> it was a terrible idea because what did you try what, Katie what's your understanding of where Theresa May is on this because the, there was always a perception that George Osborne was a bit keener on Lords reform than David Cameron was. Is, is this... I mean, she's got quite a lot on her plate. I, I assume see, this isn't on her radar. I don't see a massive appetite to, to yeah. change things, other than the fact that there's the, the real imbalance in terms of the amount of Conservatives in, in there. So it's frustrating for any Prime Minister to trying to get legislation through, through that you can't uh, do that because the, the balance is it is at the moment. I think there's something to be said for uh, the balance of age in, in the Lords, and that's why um, some Prime Ministers do try to give it a balance. Uh, I was absolutely horrified... This might be a controversial uh, thing to say, but when Michelle Moan went into the House of Lords, because I felt that just because of business experience didn't really cut it for me in terms of ability to perform well in the House of Lords. And we can be critical of David Cameron's appointments, but one of them recently, Liz Sugg, is doing a tremendously difficult job in the House of Lords and working really hard. She's taking it on board as this kind of full-time job that she's going to do a really good job at. And so I think that some of them actually are dedicated to doing a good, good job in there. Lucy? I was just going to say, I, I, I agree with you, Katie, that there isn't any appetite for, from ministers for the government to bring legislation to change laws. But that's precisely why the Lord Speaker has convened this committee so the Lords can sort out the issue among themselves. Uh, I think there is a kind of broad agreement um, in the House of Lords that, uh, that, that, that there does need to be change. But, but one thing I just wanted to flag is that I think a huge um, crisis could be coming down the line in the Lords over Brexit legislation. <gasps> You've said Brexit, but we'll ignore I that. Know, we'll ignore I know, we'll sorry ignore to... Contravene your uh, your ban. He didn't even use his, his kind of his buzzer, buzzer, buzzer thing. <laughs> keep going, keep going. Um, but 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 just to say, I think you know that the, the laws have survived thus far because it's always sort of acknowledged the the supremacy of the Commons. And I think if if there is a move by by peers, and I'd be interested to hear very briefly what Danny thinks about this, to 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 block or substantially change Brexit legislation, I, I think that could be a major constitutional crisis. It could be, but I suspect what will happen is that they'll send it back and try and test the view of the commons but won't push you know which is what happened the first time uh you know and and one of the things that stops the lords uh, because the lords is not elected it exercises a degree of self-restraint it's always exercised that when it stops exercising that degree of self-restraint it will have undermined itself constitutionally and it'll undermine the argument i've made yeah. right which is what's the alternative well then it mm. will not be an alternative itself uh and that will be the end you know and and that's 
that's all right. Well, it's fascinating, and I'm sure it's something that we'll come come back to again in the future. But let's um, move on now, and this is Katie Perrier on something that could be happening in politics rather sooner. Westminster is once again rife with rumour of a pending reshuffle by the Prime Minister. If it is to take place within the next fortnight, it will be highly likely the Chancellor gets to stay to deliver his much-anticipated bold budget. Boris too is unlikely to be moved. Instead, a few poor loyal ministers will probably be chopped to make way for some of the newer MPs, having watched the others do a mediocre job of running things and now fancy a go at it themselves. Alongside a new party chairman, this move is likely to keep both sides of the party quiet, but for how much longer? This has all the signs of a ruffle rather than a shuffle. Well, we all love a bit of uh, reshuffle speculation. We think you you expect it to be after the EU summit, but probably not long after? I think within the next fortnight, if, if it's going to happen at all. And therefore, because it probably won't be the big, bold kind of change that people were expecting maybe earlier in the summer. Uh, Is it going to be a bit Theresa May-ish, do you think? I think it might be. It might be. It might just be kind of steady as it goes. Uh, it's promoting a few people that may be the future of tomorrow. You never know. That, that To show whether or not they're up to scratch in uh, rather than saying things from the sidelines, getting involved. Uh, and, and as I say, a few people may be chopped as a result that probably haven't done anything wrong but just haven't kind of shone during that that time so let's talk let's talk names then. let's start with boris you've worked with you worked with boris on his two london mail campaigns you know him well and you've then obviously worked uh alongside him when you were in number 10 do, do you do you think he'll get the sack does he deserve the sack is he only going to survive because he's more trouble outside the tent than inside i think that he will stay and I think that Boris kind of goes up and down and he kind of he, when he's not at the top table or when he feels that he's not being listened to then he really does flex his muscles and so uh, he goes back back to uh, being regular Boris when uh, that that's happened and I think probably Prime Minister's got used to that and has figured actually it's not worth having him on the outside she's done this job over the last period of time over the last year you know sitting on the fence and really balancing the act between the Remainers and the Brexiteers within the party. Sorry, I've mentioned the word. <laughs> I promise I wasn't going to. But it's, it's unavoidable when you're talking about reshuffle to not mention the B word. Um, uh, that's, that's Brexit, not Boris. <laughs> and um, uh, but I think I think Boris will stay. I think the Chancellor will stay, and I think it'll be a middle-ranking kind of change. Do you think there'll be any other change in the cabinet uh, other than a party chairman? Uh, and maybe uh, one, one or two moves. I can see a potential. Uh, that, that you have to promote someone to the, or one or two to the cabinet and make those changes, but but most of it I think will be unchanged and it'll be ministerial level. Lucy, what do you expect from the from the reshuffle? You know, there's people urging the prime minister to make really big changes. Um, others, whip certainly urging more caution, as I understand it. But I think um, as well as the sort of the, the Brexit divide and people lining up between, you know. Philip Hammond uh, and, and Boris Johnson over their predilections for uh, our withdrawal from the EU. I think there's also a question of of competence. I think a lot of people feel that over recent weeks, the cabinets look pretty shambolic due to a number of gaffes. You know, Boris first quoting this 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 Rudyard Kipling poem that insulted the Buddha in Myanmar, then making a gaffe about clearing dead bodies from certain Libya in some sort of flip comment, a joke that went wrong. Philip Hammond last week describing the EU as the enemy. I think there are people sort of who think that she should she should ha- perhaps have a shake up um, to get rid of um, people who are sort of gaff prone as much as uh, as much as sort of politically um, uh, at odds with with uh, their vision and who would you see being on the up who, who are the names to look out for 
Well, I certainly think that there, there does need to be um, some tidbits thrown to the 2015 generation who are agitating now. They've kind of they've kind of come of age in such a um, tumultuous time that I think that they feel they've sort of gained in, in two years this sort of experience that many people gain every decade. Um, I think certainly Tom Tugendhat is someone who, who's who's made waves. James Cleverly has been pretty open about his pitch for for party chairman. That that will be interesting to see what happens, particularly in that role, um, given Patrick McLaughlin is sort of so widely known to be um, to be unhappy there and you know has been blamed for some of the um, misfortunes of the conference well he's been blamed for literally everything blamed for it's the election really that he had no great harsh. part I mean I have, ri- I have written in the times that he should go but because actually, not, not because of magnetic lettering but not because of magnetic lettering <laughs> or the fact that you know it, uh, they let a prankster get that close to the Prime Minister uh, I think you need someone new uh, innovative I- with r- radical ideas to be party chairman at this time and do you think a sort of bigger Conservative HQ operation with some people coming up with ideas, policy development happening in, you know, lower ranking MPs, but giving them a sort of first rung on the ladder. Well, the Conservatives have lost the ability to surprise anymore. We just, you know, we're trying to be, we're trying to out Corbyn Corbyn. You know, we're trying to be kind of socialism light. And I don't think that cuts it. And therefore, you do need a hotbed of ideas and you do need. Uh, to, to be having that homegrown talent uh, internally but it's not just about the size it's about the quality of what you offer we really need to invest heavily in social media for example we're way behind on that and it's embarrassing the Instagram so. account joining party conference the behind lame. the scenes pictures of pretty lame Damien Green with his hand in his pocket was not, that was not going to go viral there were the rumours afterwards that, 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 was, that some of this stuff's due to cutbacks they won't invest in the right areas a party chairman needs to not just lead the way on that but release the funds for certain things that they think are really important and slightly older party chairmen some, sometimes don't think that that kind of stuff's worth investing in so you do need a mix of the both Danny, um, whenever you speak to uh, whips or former whips they always say the same thing that reshuffles are an effing nightmare Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, so when you said is this going to be a typical Theresa May operation, if you mean by that you know, a sort of conscientious and sane appreciation of our own <laughs> position. The answer to that is yes, right? So, um, the, the, well, what I know, meant was, so, no, but I mean, there were some I, people I, urging. I understand. So, one of the things that's more. very important is that we use the the um, the phrase "a weak prime minister" interchangeably between saying she is a weak person and she is in a weak position. But those are, in fact, different things, right? And the the thing that affects the the reshuffle is primarily the question of whether she is in a strong or weak position. Um, I think were she in a strong position, she probably would want to reshuffle the Chancellor and the Foreign Secretary uh, to get a Chancellor that was more amenable to a bold political strategy because probably she wants one that's less fiscally conservative um, and more and, and works with her more closely. Uh, and Boris, um, well, we've discussed the reasons why a Prime Minister might be frustrated with him. But on the uh, those people, for good or ill, represent um, strands of opinion in the Conservative Party and she's in a position where she doesn't have a majority and she can't afford to make changes. In addition to which I am really sceptical about the political value of these things. Most people you know when when Philip Hammond made his budget mistake I, I phoned up a pollster friend of mine and asked you know will this damage him and make him look gaff prone and he said no because no one knows he's Chancellor of the Exchequer. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the uh, you know we we massively overestimate the extent to which anyone will notice. Now then there's this Kate, then there's Katie's correctly phrased question about the chairmanship. So f- which you can take on any number of things. Which is by replacing them, will you get somebody who will be much more effective in that position? Well, clearly, if 
you had somebody who um, was a much more effective party chairman, it, affect your, uh, it might affect your electoral prospects to some degree. Again, let's not overestimate. One of the reasons the Conservative Party got tanked on social media is because... Uh, is because social media is a peer-to-peer uh, communications product and the Conservative Party is 40% behind among the people who use it. So therefore, almost all... And, and, and it was, so it was at least as much effect as, as, as it was caused. So I think she is correct to have a cold, sober appreciation of her position and to make the limited changes that that allows, not expecting some... now. The, the 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 more the most difficult one of those is the chancellor, right? Because clearly it does actually make a difference if you have a chancellor who can develop an election-winning strategy. Nothing is more important in terms of winning the next election than somebody who is going to end up landing on the nose in the next general election with with personal incomes growing, right? And you have to be sure you've got a, a, a chancellor of the exchequer with a sufficiently political appreciation of that. Um, but at the moment. Uh, as well as potentially holding that back, Philip Hammond is also the voice of sanity for people like me on um, issues which we're not allowed to mention without. <laughs> so, all right then, if not Boris and Hammond, who else would you sack to free up some space to promote some people? Let's start with you, Kate, as you started it. I would probably move Liz Truss. Uh, from the cabinet, I think that the 2015-2010 intake feel that they could give it give it a go themselves. This is uh, chief secretary of the treasury. Absolutely. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that someone someone outside the cabinet should take that role. Someone should probably move aside. Uh, and there's a couple of others possibly that could move. But I don't think it's going to be a big cabinet reshuffle. It's going to be a ministerial reshuffle. Lucy? I'm, I'm not going to get into kind of advocating anyone to be sacked. It's going to be a reporter <laughs> and need to keep my cards r- r- rather dry. But I, I, I do think that there is a sense that... Um, People, people with ideas and with ca- and with character. I, I slightly disagree that that the the, the, the role of chairman um, should be shouldn't be overestimated because I think the party just completely lacks any mojo at the moment. So I just like to see some people, even new roles created, sort of ambassadorial roles for the party. People with ideology or with ideas and with kind of character to try and rejuvenate. It just feels so down in the dumps. It's sort of depressing. What we're saying here, I guess, today is that actually this is about party management yeah, 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 rather yeah, than yeah. the public ever noticing any change or indeed yeah. calling for any change. Yeah, <coughs> not, not course, many people might notice if they are in all SW1. Look, it will, of course, if you have a chairman organising, you know, Andrew Folmer made a big difference, right? The way he raised money, the way he organised things, it did make a big difference. So, of course, it makes a big difference if you, uh, in organisational terms, but it is not the thing that will alter the election the key thing about it is your economic and fundamental political strategy that that will make the difference and i don't think that reshuffle is going to determine that it won't stop us speculating about it though uh, let's move on now um and we'll if and when there is a reshuffle we'll um cast a critical eye over it when it happens but let's move on now uh and this is daniel finkelstein the Tory ascendancy wasn't just built on support for capitalism, it was also built on Atlanticism. And it's this second pillar that's in even more trouble than the first. Jeremy Corbyn will mount a full-scale assault on the traditional foreign policy of the country, and at the moment there's almost no public argument about it. So I thought this is a really interesting topic, and because it's sort of it's not one that comes up one week and down the next, it sort of doesn't really get talked about. It's sort of just bubbling away in the background. Our relationship, our position on the world stage, and we might end up using the B word in that a bit, but also our relationship with America and America's current relationship with the entire world um, is all being sort of undermined and shifting all the time. Um, 
and nobody's really making the case for it. Well, it was interesting. So there's been lots of debate at the moment in the Conservative Party about you know, saving capitalism. How do we make sure capitalism works for everybody? And it just occurred to me that the Conservative ascendancy, and if you look at the 1983 election, it, you know, which everyone always talks about in relation to Corbyn, it was one on three things. One was, you know, we can't go on as we are with this interventionist economic policy. It's been a disaster, so we're going to have to have tough economic medicine. Right? And that was a winning message. The second was actually, ironically enough, we need to stay in the European Union, not leave it. Uh, and the third one was uh, we are not going to have unilateral nuclear disarmament which will undermine NATO and uh, destroy our relationships with the United States of America and those things were all powerful messages and people accepted them and the, the Conservative Party um, went back always to the Munich analogy, you know, uh, we don't want to be surrendering like we did before Munich and, and appeasing, although forgetting that of course it was the party that had negotiated Munich in other words that the the position that we've grown up and become used to, which is Britain is an interventionist international uh, political power, which has been part of our history, a lot of our history, is not always the attitude of governments and not inevitably the attitude of the American government either, which has often which has gone through long periods of isolationism. So Theodore Roosevelt, for example, was in you know in the early 1900s the first president to visit another country, um, and uh, the, the United States went in and out of. Um, isolationism and Roosevelt Franklin Roosevelt found it very difficult to pull the United States back even when the Second World War started so we are in a fundamentally new a new uh, international position and Jeremy Corbyn in particular wants to change our position to a to a neutralist position and if you ask you know his view on almost all of these conflicts they are you know neutralist peacemaker uh, positions um, I think they will not create peace, uh, but that is what he wants to do. Uh, that is a big challenge to traditional foreign policy of the country, which has been the foreign. When I say traditional, certainly been the position throughout the entire post-war era, and the cons- there's been almost no discussion. It was not an issue, for example, the prime minister felt called upon to speak about in her in her address to the party conference. That has almost never been the case in the past, but I think it was probably a sensible editing decision on her behalf. But that's pretty interesting. And it's interesting that what we've seen is people describing the rise of Corbyn's popularity to austerity fatigue, and he sort of chimed with this shift in the public mood. But actually this sort of interventionist conflict fatigue of of Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, Libya, and he's sort of chiming with that, that even though at the time those interventions were supported by the public just the sort of cumulative effect and having seen them play out in not quite the way that everyone hoped they would that actually just not the doing something Syria seems like a better was, way of i mean the Syria vote was a major moment in post-war political history uh not i think um you know so alongside do you mean the first one when ned Miliband was leader uh, yes yeah so the decision uh, not to uh, not to do anything really when when uh, Syria crossed the red uh, red line, uh, and um, it was also actually pretty important in, in America's post-war political history, in fact, too. Uh, and I just feel that we've we've concentrated on this question: how do we restore the Conservative Party's, um, or how does the Conservative Party restore its, uh, you know, depending which way you sit, uh, its position on the economy uh, and capitalism, uh, or do we? replace it without actually reflecting on the fact that probably the the things that Corbyn cares about most are not those things but foreign policy but non-aligned foreign policy and you know we're we're about to go into 
to an election in the next few years in which the Labour Party will be led by somebody who wants a non-aligned foreign policy. A very important moment in the history of the whole of the West that Britain would take that position, which we've never taken. Uh, you know, um, and um, I think we have almost had no debate about this particular issue in the Conservative Party hasn't attempted to shore up its position or debate that, and I just thought I'd raise it. Lucy, it was interesting at the weekend we saw young Labour passing a motion saying that Britain should leave NATO. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a part of the Labour organisation, but... Yeah, it was a, it was rather a confused motion that sort of regretted <laughs> um, sort of the UK's part in the Vietnam War, which um, might surprise any um, <laughs> scholars of history. Um, no, I, I think Danny's um, point's are really interesting, but I, I, I you know, I'd, my... To my mind, it's Donald Trump who's done more to undermine um, Atlanticism and, 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 and not just the sort of weakening the special relationship because on the grounds of taste, I think, to, ma- to many Britons, you know, his sexism, his chauvinism, his anti-migrant uh, immigrant sentiment um, is very distasteful. But because he was the, you know, the original person flip-flopping on, on NATO, um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's, you know, been making this argument for, for, for a long time, you know, against American imperialism. But Donald Trump, you know, it, when he was uh, a candidate for, for the president and then when president, seemed to be so weak on it that I think that that, that has done enormous amount of damage to the future yeah. of the alliance. Um, but I do think that the, the government um, in, in Britain should be talking more about foreign policy. It was very interesting to me that in the general election campaign, how much Labour's focus on Saudi Arabia, Britain selling arms to Saudi, Saudi then being involved in the war in Yemen, um, how much play that seemed to get to me um, on social media as, as, as I saw it. And I think the government could be doing much more to make the argument um, uh uh, about why we have these alliances. So I, I was with the, the Prime Minister uh, in April this year when she went to Saudi. I was very surprised and interested to see Saudi um, later this year announce that they're going to allow women to drive. That was exactly something that Theresa May was talking about in Saudi um, earlier this year. And, and, and yet, you know, the government's not making the argument, you know, we're going over there. We have soft power influence that's, you know, some of the, the criticisms people make of the regimes we deal with on grounds of human rights or oppression. You know, we are helping by maintaining alliances rather than shutting our off from the rest of the world. We, we had a fascinating debate on the issue of Saudi Arabia in an episode that Melanie Phillips was on earlier this year, which foreign policy is complicated. Mm. And sometimes my enemy's enemy is my friend, mm-hmm. and my enemy's enemy, enemy, enemy. And it, it's complicated. And where you can't just say good guys, bad guys, which is sometimes the tendency of possibly students and the leader of the Labour Party. Katie, what's your, your perception of the sort of limited amount of time and limited number of messages a Prime Minister can be communicating. Is foreign policy a a harder sell? Is it sort of judged as voters aren't interested in it so we don't talk about it? It's an easier sell when you're 24 points ahead in the polls, that's for sure. And so when your bandwidth is taken up by lots of other things and your civil service is, you know, quite busy uh, dealing with those other things we're not allowed to talk about, um, I I feel that maybe it does go on the back burner somewhat. But it doesn't mean to say that Theresa May doesn't think uh, that she doesn't feel that that responsibility and that's exactly why those relationships are still open in the way that Lucy describes and that's what some of the things that they want to do behind closed doors it's much easier to explain uh, to someone who's kind of 40 or 50 years old that as, as understands that things in life are not clear cut than a 20 year old who thinks it's all kind of you know these people are evil and therefore we should never deal with them ever again um, I also think that it was quite a proud moment, actually, when I went with uh, the Prime Minister to the US uh, because we went to, didn't go straight to, to see Trump. We went to Philadelphia first for kind of a pit stop where we where the Prime Minister spoke uh, to the Republicans at their convention about what it her, It was really the only time I've properly seen her stand up and give a foreign policy speech. 
And it was exactly why I think people think that you know the Conservatives have a home for them. It's exactly why we have a purpose in the world. And uh, it showed that she these things are important to her and important to a Conservative government. It's just that there's no kind of appetite or space to keep on banging on about it. But I think Danny's got a point. I, I worry that in t- 10, 20 years' time, we will think we, we missed the opportunity to stand up for some of these things that are important. Um, I, I wrote down Syria in my notes as you were speaking before you mentioned it, saying that this was a moment I think we shied away from the world and we... We will, you know, live to see the consequences. Yeah. I mean, look, it's very important, uh, Lucy. You're completely correct, of course, and and you know, I, I wouldn't want for a second to be uh, not to say that clearly the biggest crisis in the Atlantic relationship is the president, uh, his insularity, his bigotry, and his unreliability, frankly, and um, unfitness to hold uh, that kind of office or or be the leader. Um, but uh, it's more, I use the phrase Atlanticism less about our relationship with the current American regime than to mean um, our uh, view of Britain as a global voice for liberal uh, democracy and values, and you put it very well. Um, so clearly one of the problems with asserting an, uh, an international role as Atlanticists is the current a very miserable state of our partnership um, and the fact that it's also happening at a time when we're you know, when our relationships with other European powers is more fragile than it was is um, is obviously very concerning. It's just worthwhile noting we've spent a lot of time considering the weakness of that of the the first big pillar of the conservative ascendancy, mm. which is capitalism, and not enough thinking. Well, there are all these things that are assailing that second pillar, and in particular, uh, and and it's going to face a proper intellectual challenge, which maybe can be ignored because it's not that electorally potent. You know, foreign policy and our policy towards um, you know non-aligned states and things like that are not not uh, important. But I. The idea that we're about to embark on what might be either neutralist or what might be called, using a sort of slightly odd phrase, anti-imperialist foreign policy, that will become a very significant part of world affairs. And Jeremy Corbyn is proposing a very big change in in the way that we approach world politics. And there's not much discussion of that. Okay, just before we wrap up, just, just describe briefly the calculation that was made about going to Washington when you did. Uh, with Theresa May and obviously taking the decision that trying to sort of bind Trump in at the beginning was a good idea and you know whether the hand-holding photo and all of that ends up becoming a problem for Theresa May rather than you know it was a gamble but it might be one that it doesn't pay off. Well some things are out of your control and certainly that picture wasn't something that I planned to be the splash the next day um, I, you know I'd spent a lot of time and effort <coughs> making sure that it was a press conference with you know the, the, the vision of both of them standing in front of the flags uh, and saying very nice things towards each other was going to be the thing that we went from not holding hands going down a step but they as I say they're out of your control. Um, the the decision to actually was to hold off until inauguration because uh, there was calls there were calls very early on to go much earlier and uh, indeed the president kept on you know, the would be president kept on inviting us saying do come do come and so uh, we waited to be the first to go after inauguration but we were quick to to move out there because it was very important for us to be seen that we do value uh, the US we are leaving the, the European Union and then we're looking abroad, looking further afield for stronger <coughs> relationships the the quick 
move to do that. And actually, it was Theresa May's brilliance, actually, when she rolled him into a commitment on NATO in that press conference that even I didn't expect. Uh, I knew that we were going to try and get some kind of commitment, not live in the, in front of uh, millions of people watching. Because you basically said, and you're totally committed to the to NATO as it well, aren't you? It was absolutely was brilliant. A, uh, and he said, yeah. yes. Yes. <laughs> and don't forget, this was his first proper press conference with a foreign leader. He didn't know what he was doing. She knew exactly what she was doing. And I thought she did a brilliant, brilliant job at, at that event. And uh, but you know, offering a state visit probably wasn't a very good idea. It was probably jumping the gun a bit too much, and it's not something I thought was necessary at the time. Uh, but it was it, it was a trip that went really well because also the republic we had great time with the Republicans, so we got to spend some time with uh, you know the lead the leader, um, uh, various other people, John McCain, others. So we we got some spend some quality time with people to show the commitment that we have to this relationship. And then of course it all went wrong because we went to Turkey afterwards, and that was a bit of a rubbish trip so you live and learn well it's fascinating and what happens with his scales down or otherwise state visit working visit at some point next year will be um, fascinating um, not least to see quite how many people turn out to give him a warm welcome uh, that's all we've got time for uh, this week unfortunately you can subscribe to the um, podcast on iTunes and if you could leave a review there that would be even better as long as they're nice ones uh, you can sign up to my morning email briefing at the times.co.uk forward slash red box but for now from Daniel Finkstein Katie Perrier, Lucy Fisher, and me, Matt Chorley. It's goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.